I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part one in the series, Fighting the World, the Flesh, and the Devil. In the modern world, the notion of a supernatural boogeyman called Satan, who puppeteers much of the world's evil, is dismissed as the superstition of a bygone era. And yet, when we look to the scriptures and to the teachers and practitioners of the way of Jesus throughout history, we find not only belief in an unseen spiritual realm, but an aggressive engagement with it. This is called spiritual warfare, and the enemy in this fight is the father of lies. Tonight, we are going to talk about tragic things. But before tragedy, um, let's hear a couple of comedians talk about comedy. So as a kid, when you're saying, I, I want to do this, who, what did you th- who was the comedian for you? Was there well, a the person? comedian was Bill Cosby. Of course. Uh, those albums, I had Very never Very funny heard. fellow right, wonderfulness. Why is there air? Uh-huh. Greatest, uh, uh, col- um, uh, um, what's the word, body of work, mm-hmm. uh, I, th- I think, in comedy is his. Can you still listen to his comedy? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I grew up on his stuff. Like, I think he saved my life. Right. Because when I was a kid, I had like a tragedy in my life. But for the next two years, I listened to Bill Cosby oh, albums every night right. before I go into bed. I would hide the speaker under my pillow so my mom wouldn't hear that oh, I was listening to Cosby God. every night. You could drop a needle anywhere on those albums, and yet I can't listen to it now. No. I just oh, can't, you can't. I can't. I can't separate. Now, the reason that Mr. Colbert finds himself incapable of enjoying something that was once a thing of great beauty and joy to him is, of course, evil. Um, Bill Cosby is widely regarded as one of the greatest stand-up comedians of all time. He was an activist, an educator, one of the most noteworthy figures in all of entertainment history, easily. But it seems that now what Cosby will most be remembered and recognized for is a series of sexual assault accusations. In April, he was actually found guilty of three of those charges and sentenced to as many as 10 years in prison. And I read just this week that more charges have begun to accumulate. Now, what can we make of Colbert's experience and his claims that Bill Cosby saved his life? Was that a sham? Did he not actually experience that? After all, it seems that Bill Cosby was up to sinister things in that same era of his life. Or is it the case that a man truly capable of great things was also concurrently and simultaneously capable of heinous evil? How easy would it be for you and I to kind of sit back in our seats aghast at this image of Bill Cosby being led away in handcuffs and scowl and reel at the idea of this modern day Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. But somewhere within, we know the truth. Each of us are a similar dichotomy of good and evil. And we draw from either well on a regular basis to minor or even disastrous ends. And this feeling of inner warfare is a familiar one. The world itself often feels as if it were constantly weaving in and out of a great shadow, beauty and horror, comedy and tragedy. Open your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Now, there are a number of reasons by which humanity has attempted to explain this war within. 
Lack of education seems to be the most popular explanation nowadays, or it could be some kind of socio-political complication. It could be what psychologists call the lizard brain, which is that part of the mind that's responsible for primitive survival instincts such as aggression and fear. But for those of us who have become apprentices of Jesus and who, upon proper study, find the complicated worldview of the Scriptures compelling, we are invited to consider an invisible reality, a reality that is populated by beings, by unseen forces and wills, and like the visible realm, the invisible one is often rife with warfare. And we, as followers of King Jesus, are taught not only an awareness of this unseen reality, but an aggressive engagement with it, a fight against very real enemies. And teachers and practitioners of the way of Jesus down throughout church history have used this language to describe them. They call them the three enemies of the soul, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, that exact line doesn't show up in the scriptures, but that language and the idea of it permeates the entire library of the Bible. And yet, for some of us, that language confuses us or maybe even makes us squirm because we think, well, what is the flesh? Is that some kind of fear of ourselves or our bodies or our desires? Isn't what we hear so often, be true to yourself, follow your heart? Isn't that the noblest end of man? And what about this language of the world? This is the language of out-of-touch fundamentalists, you know, those old-school churchy folks who fear dancing and Harry Potter and Halloween, you know. And all this before we arrive at the devil, the idea of a singular, personal, autonomous entity who goes about expending all his time and energy on evil. Don't we have better ways of explaining the world's ills? And Understandable as some of these apprehensions may be, Jesus invites his apprentices to constantly challenge our worldviews, that we may shape it to look more like his all the time. So, the plan for the fall is to explore this idea in detail. We're going to take a deep dive into what Jesus, the scriptures, and teachers of the way have to say about the world, the flesh, and the devil. Because all of us are in a fight, but many of us don't realize it. We don't acknowledge it, and we are not prepared for it because we do not know our enemy. So with this series in practice, we hope to change all that. And it starts tonight with the devil. Now, finally, let's look at one biography of Jesus called the Gospel of John, chapter 8, and let's begin reading with the 31st verse, John 8, 31. To the Jews who believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my apprentices. Then you will know the truth, and listen, the truth will set you free. They answered him, we're Abraham's descendants. We've never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we will be set free? And Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to a family forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Yet you are looking for a way to kill me. I know that you're Abraham's descendants, but you're looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. I'm telling you what I have seen in the father's presence, and you are doing what you have heard from your father. Abraham is our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, Jesus said, then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you're looking for a way to kill me, a man who has told the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the works of your own father. 
We are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. Now, uh, there's a side note. There's actually a bit of innuendo here in Greek. It's not literally illegitimate children. They're actually taking a jab at the fact that Jesus was conceived and born out of wedlock. A more accurate translation would actually be, we are not bastards like you are. Verse 42 goes on. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Now, there's a lot here, but first I want you guys to notice this. Jesus believes that there is a devil. Now, when all of us hear Jesus say, the devil, <laughs> there's an idea, maybe even an image that comes to mind. Maybe it's like a menacing imp with horns and red skin like the Lord of Darkness from Legend. Is this him? There he is. Yeah, he's kind of hard to see. That's Tim Curry under all that makeup and prosthetics. Or maybe when you hear devil, you think of an icon like the sigil of Baphomet used by Anton LaVey's Church of Satan. Uh, <laughs> earlier, I was testing these slides while worship was going on, and I was like, this is the weirdest. No one take a picture in here while we... <laughs> it, was, it was funny to me anyway. Or maybe you don't think of a symbol or a, an entity proper. You think of an impersonal yet malevolent force at work in the world, like the dark side in Star Wars. But actually, none of these ideas are consistent with the worldview of Jesus. In Greek, the word Jesus uses to describe this entity called the devil is diabolos, where we get the English word diabolical. And diabolos is actually from a verbal root meaning to slander or to accuse. More literally, the word is the slanderer or the accuser. And this is actually among many names for a creature referenced throughout the entire Bible that is also known as the Satan or the serpent or the evil one, or the tempter, the destroyer, the deceiver. And you'll notice all these monikers are actually titles rather than proper names. Today we often hear Satan used the way that somebody uses like John or Walter, as if this were the creature's specific name, but really it isn't. It's a title or a rank or a position. In fact, get this, I read this week that some scholars suspect this could be kind of like a middle finger from the authors of the scripture that this creature shouldn't even get a proper name. And if you're thinking, oh wait, isn't Lucifer the devil's name? Well, no, it's a long story that has to do with the Latin version of the Bible called the Vulgate, some bad translating work that happened in the King James Bible. But the gist of it is that Lucifer is actually a Latin word that means morning star or light bearer, which shows up in Isaiah 14 as a title for the king of Babylon. And because of later references to Satan as an angel of light, the title became confused with the devil proper. All that to say, this creature gets no proper name, not Lucifer or anything else. But it does get a title, the Satan, the accuser. In fact, three times Jesus himself refers to this creature as the ruler of this world. Elsewhere in the New Testament, he's called the God of this age. 
And that word ruler that Jesus used is archon in Greek. It refers to a high-ranking political official with authority and dominion over a specific geographic location. To Jesus, the Satan is the most powerful and influential creature in the world, the God of this age. Now, if you grew up around the church or you just know Christian stories, maybe you've heard stuff about this creature, maybe you've heard his backstory, but interestingly, the Bible doesn't really offer a traditional linear narrative about the Satan. Instead, what we know about him is pieced together from all sorts of non-linear, non-chronological stories, descriptions, quotations, and little bits of narrative here and there to, that all together offer insight into the story of this being that we call the Satan. And the plan is to get to that story in detail a bit further down the road, beginning with next week. But tonight, I want you to see and consider this. To Jesus, the devil is real. The devil is not an intangible force. He is not a pre-enlightenment superstition. He is not a cartoon imp in pink pajamas. He is not a goat in a pentagram. To Jesus, the devil is a real and personal, intelligent and autonomous being that is behind much of the evil in our world, our culture, and warring in our own hearts and souls and minds. In the story we just read from John's Gospel, the Satan is behind the evil within the religious leaders of Jesus' day. In fact, there's actually a Hebrew slight that gets kind of lost in translation in which Jesus connects the religious leaders to a prophecy in Genesis 3 about the seed of the serpent, if you know the story. And he says, the devil is your father. And Jesus uses the same kind of language for the Roman Empire, which was a political evil, an institutional evil. And yes, it was all those things, but behind it, there was something else. Now, depending on your background or your story, your journey with Jesus, maybe all this is old news. Maybe it's brand new information, I don't know. Maybe it's outlandish or goofy sounding to you. Maybe to you it seems archaic and absurd that we need a boogeyman to explain why the world is bent out of shape. But as with every one of these practices, our invitation to you is to join us on a journey. Consider the possibility that Jesus was not outdated nor uninformed, but was perhaps entirely and accurately aware of something difficult for us to imagine in the modern world. To Jesus, the devil is real. That's point number one. Secondly, to Jesus, the devil is, and I quote, a murderer. His agenda, his goal is to murder like so many fictional villains on which the devil is either consciously or subconsciously based, he wants destruction. The way that Alfred Pennyworth explained the Joker to Bruce Wayne, if you remember the film, he said, some men just want to watch the world burn. This is why C.S. Lewis wrote this. There is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. Thus, when your world, your family, your relationships, your own soul feels as though it has been brought into some kind of existential war zone, the reason could just be because they all have. To apprentice Jesus is to acknowledge this reality and to take your place in that fight. Now, the third thing I want you to see tonight is this, that if the devil's goal is murder, destruction, the desolation of God's good world and of your very life and soul in the process, if that is the Satan's end, then the means by which he works to achieve it is, and please listen, lies. Jesus calls the devil the father of lies, the origin of lies, the progenitor 
of lives. When he lies, he speaks his native language. Now, maybe you think, sure, the devil lies, you know, kind of makes sense. But realize that when many of us uh, imagine what we call spiritual warfare. We think of things like exorcisms or maybe like terminal illness, you know, doing battle with the devil. We don't think of going to battle over lies. How many of us have heard stories from often well-meaning followers of Jesus who describe everything from like a cough to a parking ticket as like being under spiritual attack, you know? Um, or conversely, how many of us know or have known or have been the type of people who face heinous evil and dismiss the devil's involvement as superstitious nonsense. So we either stretch spiritual warfare to a breaking point, or we dismiss it altogether, or maybe we just relegate it to a paradigm of extremes, meaning like exorcisms maybe, or natural disasters, or terminal illness. Maybe that's spiritual warfare. And those things are either directly or indirectly connected to the devil, yes, but in tonight's text, Jesus' most in-depth teaching on the devil, he doesn't mention exorcisms or cancer or tsunamis. Though there are demons and disease and disaster in other gospel stories, this story is about an intellectual debate with religious leaders. And the debate is about truth and lies. So again, for Jesus, the devil is real. He's the most powerful, influential creature in the world. His end game is to kill and to destroy, to murder, in other words. And finally, his primary means of doing this is by lying. Yes, he uses disease and disaster, among many other things, but his primary means of achieving his evil in the world is through lies, deception. So consequently, for Jesus, the fight against the devil is a fight to believe the truth and to reject lies. You guys still with me? You all right? Great. Thank you. Now, do me a favor. Sharpen up for a second for this next bit. It's a bit on the dense side, but it's going to be so important for us going forward. Um, let me pose a broad question for you guys. What is truth? One definition could be that truth is that which corresponds with reality. And one definition of reality might be the wall that we hit when something is not true. So if, for example, I convince myself that I can breathe underwater, which is something my son told me recently we were swimming in a pool. He's like, I can breathe underwater. I was like, all right, well, good luck. Um, reality is, you know, I wake up from the blackout and someone's doing CPR. Like, oh, I guess I, I can't. You know, that's the wall you hit when something isn't true. And this is why we use expressions like, you know, face reality or that's the cold, hard truth, my friend, whatever. And so when we say that's a lie, we mean that does not correspond with reality. It's just not reality that I can breathe underwater. So if my daughter starts crying in another room, I, this, this never happens. I rush in and I find my son looking all suspicious, you know, on the other side of the room with like this big toy and she's got a mark on her face that matches the shape of the toy. And I say, did you hurt her somehow? And he's like, no. What he's saying is that claim does not correspond with reality. That's not what transpired. And of course, you know, his claim is flimsy and it's a whole mess. Now, truth is reality. In other words, that's what we're getting at. Truth is reality. Lies are unreality. All right, hang in there. Stay with me. All of us, whether we like it or not, live out of what psychologists call mental maps. You might call this your worldview, in other words, or your narrative. Uh, in the church, we often call it our faith. Now, your mind does have actual maps proper, unless it's like mine and that part just fell out when you were a baby or something. The ones that remind you how to get from work to the grocery store or back home or whatever it might be. And this is actually a great analogy for us because if that map corresponds with reality, then you will arrive at your destination. It's quite convenient. If it does not, 
then you will not arrive at your destination, or at least you won't get there until you adjust your map to correspond with reality. In much the same way, you live from maps for all of your waking life, maps that navigate relationships or sexuality or career or ambition, fear, anxiety, money, parenting, and on down the list. These mental maps are little more than a collection of ideas that you have. And ideas are simply assumptions about reality and the way that life and the world works, meaning you have certain ideas about what will make you happy and how to get it, and so you follow the map. And our entire world is made up of people and their maps, happiness, uh, ideas like democracy or capitalism or human rights or even theology is a collection of ideas about God. And all of our ideas converge to create a mental map and we use that map to navigate reality. Or all that put plainly, you believe things to be true and you live a certain way as a result. Now, hang in there because this is where things get really interesting. The bizarre and complicated thing about human beings is that we are capable of holding in our minds both things that do and do not correspond with reality. And we can hold both of them concurrently, meaning that we are able to envision what is and what is not, and in a good sense and a bad sense. So I remember once having a conversation with a friend of mine about this fantasy film, uh, one of my favorites called The Dark Crystal, and this friend of mine said something simple and profound, uh, which was that this film was such an incredible realization of the human capacity to just make stuff up. He's like, look, isn't this weird? People can just make things up and then realize them on a screen this way. And this is what scientists argue actually separate us and our potential from other animals, which is the capacity to imagine that which is not, at least not yet. So this means that we can conceive of a world that is unseen, meaning like we can understand the idea that there might be a God, we can understand spirituality, uh, intimacy with God that we can't see, and on down the list. But it also means that we can dream about a future that does not exist and then work to build it in the present. All creativity blossoms from the imagination. Music, literature, film, programming, baking, architecture, it's all envisioning what is not yet reality and then working to make it a reality. Now, you may have guessed that this incredible strength of the Homo sapien is also its great weakness because we can imagine unreality for the betterment of humankind and the world. Yes, awesome, that's amazing. But we also possess the capacity to believe to trust in and to live by that which does not correspond with reality. Dallas Willard said, we live at the mercy of our ideas. We believe things to be true and we live a certain way as a result. When what we believe about God, about relationships, about sexuality, about ambition, about creativity, when we, what we believe about those things is true, then we live in accordance with the truth. And as Jesus put it so well, the truth will set you free. But when what we believe about God, relationships, sexuality, ambition, money, the world, are not true, then we live a lie. We open not just our minds, but our bodies, the world around us to the poison of deception. And we set ourselves against other people, against ourselves, against God himself. Think of the way, for example, that mental illness ravages a person's life by trapping them in prisons of unreality. 
few months ago. A young lady joined us after the gathering. Um, she wandered in off the street. She was convinced that she didn't need shoes, even though it was really cold outside and wet, and she wanted to jump off the balcony. She was convinced she could do that. We had to stop her. We could not convince her otherwise. Um, you know this from living in the city, if you do, or, or if you've come up these steps on a Sunday evening, a particular Sunday evening. I, a couple of years ago, I used to ride uh, my skateboard to an office in Portland every morning, and I would soar past, it's not an exaggeration, probably a half dozen or more disheveled, unwell men and women who were screaming at people and things that did not exist. And of course, those are extreme examples, but in much the same way, when what we believe is not true, then we imprison ourselves in a world of lies and we are at the mercy of those lies. And sadly, we as human beings are perfectly capable of doing this. We can believe things that lead us not to life, but to death. Okay, you guys still with me? You all right? Great, thank you. All that to say, Jesus calls the devil a liar. And I mentioned briefly a few minutes ago, Jesus refers to this story from Genesis 3 in condemning the devil as a liar. And this is, of course, a familiar story with a talking snake. I'm sure you've heard the whole thing or seen it on, you know, a cartoon or a flannel graph or something. We'll talk about that in depth next week. But for now, if you know that story of the garden, the snake, remember that in that story, when this personification of the devil approaches Eve with sinister intent, he does not bear his fangs. It's a snake after all. It seems like it'd be fitting. He does not strike at all. He brings no club, no sickness proper, no constricting stranglehold to get Eve. Instead, he brings an idea. Psychologist M. Scott Peck wrote this groundbreaking, groundbreaking book called uh, People of the Lie, and in it he calls the devil a real spirit of unreality. And the basic thesis of his work is that often when one becomes convinced of a lie, they live accordingly and the lie somehow becomes true. So if, for example, you, as a result of your wiring, things that have happened to you, your trauma, your family of origin, all that, you come to believe that you are an unlovable person. You believe that you're dirty, that no one wants you, the world around you is cruel and unforgiving. Then you can, via years of embracing those lies and living in accordance with those lies, you can become the type of person who is cold and miserable and angry and deceitful and hurtful and toxic and insecure and isolated and who is frankly, for a great many, not that lovable until you put down those lies you've come to believe and are liberated by the truth of Jesus. And we'll get into all that in this practice. Or if you believe the widely held cultural norm that humans are little more than thinking animals, that life is a little more than a meaningless blip on the map of human or world history, universal history, that sexuality and gender are invented constructs, uh, constructs engineered by an oppressive patriarchy, that morality is fluid and subjective. If you believe all that, you can create and contribute to a world in which human beings regard one another as base objects who use, abuse, and destroy one another. And it sounds terribly familiar. Just turn on the news. It'll be available to you at any given moment. So listen, the devil's go-to primary approach to his campaign of murder is to lie. So as we navigate this practice for the next few weeks, here is the idea we want you to understand. The devil's strategy is to use deceitful ideas that pander to our brokenness and that have become normalized by a broken society. 
Let me say that one more time. The devil's strategy is to use deceitful ideas that pander to our brokenness and that have become normalized in a broken society. This means that the devil's best weapons aren't just innocuous, untrue nonsense. He won't come to you with lies that have no emotional value or no resonance whatsoever. So it's unlikely the devil's going to whisper in my ear, you know, if you play the Queen record backward, it sort of sounds like something about marijuana or, you know, whatever that we were saying back then. Because I'd say, so what? You know, if, if Freddie Mercury was some kind of backward singing genius, <laughs> I'm, I'm still never going to try marijuana and, and I'm really not going to listen to the album backwards. So I don't understand what that has to do with anything. So I doubt the devil will use those kinds of lies that have no emotional weight, no resonance, no value. Instead, he will play to our disordered desires, to the things that we want for happiness, our insecurities, our brokenness. He will appeal to us with half-truths or stretched truths or a truth that has been warped through the broken glass of our sinful desires. Because it's not just that we do evil things, it's that we often want to do evil things. Warring inside you are the concurrent and dichotomous human wills to do both good and evil, and often in the same breath or within the same circumstances. This is what the New Testament writers call the flesh. And we'll talk about it in depth, about the flesh throughout the series. For tonight, understand that no one sins out of a sense of obligation or for the heck of it. We sin because we believe lies about what will make us happy, lies about what is best for ourselves and other people in the world. Meaning you don't lust out of obligation. You don't like schedule a time and say like, I wish I didn't have to, but I got to. It's this time to lust. You objectify men or women because you believe that doing that will make you happy, even if just for a moment. You don't take things that aren't yours or degrade creation or lose your temper with your kids or mistreat your friends or languish in despair or hurt yourself and other people because like exercise, you just discipline yourself to do it even when you don't want to. No, you believe in a moment or long term, consciously or subconsciously, that doing those things is best, that doing those things will be better than not doing them or that they will make you happy. And then those disordered desires become normalized in sinful society or what the New Testament calls the world. And we mostly just call it culture, and it's not that all culture is bad. When the New Testament writers talk about the world, they are referring to ideas that have become institutionalized evil, where government or education or entertainment or even the church becomes institutionalized evil. It is the world. And the world isn't rock music or liberal politics or Halloween decorations or Harry Potter or whatever. It can be you or me, or it can be our families, or it can be the church. And it happens by way of ideas, lies, lies about race, or gender, or sexuality, or humanity, or happiness, or money, or value, and on and on down the list goes. And as nutty or valid as you think different sides of the debate may be, the reason that conservatives and liberals and progressives and fundamentalists are all so up in arms about free speech and safe spaces and censorship and art and entertainment is because at the end of the day, we agree that ideas can be very powerful things. 
We think of dictatorships and wars and nuclear bombs and ethnic cleansing and eugenics and death cults and Nazis and ISIS and post 9-11 American bloodthirst. And we go, man, ideas have the power to not only destroy individuals, but to destroy entire societies. And please pay attention. None of this happens because these people and governments and institutions set out to do evil. It's not because they set out on purpose, let's go do a heinous evil thing. It's because they set out to do their own version of good. And so it was all the way back in Genesis, in a garden before a snake hissed into a woman's ear, define good for yourself. Ideas continue to reshape the landscape of societies and of our entire world. Secularism is an idea. God does not exist. Live accordingly. Individualism is an idea. You can and should make it on your own. You don't need anyone else. The ever-evolving redefinition of marriage and family and sexuality and gender, and I'm not talking about in a legal sense. And on that note, even freedom itself is an idea, the one that has been radically redefined in recent memory. See, in the classic Christian theological tradition, freedom is not about allowance, as in, I'm free to do, you fill in the blank. Freedom, um, the freedom that Jesus came to offer, is freedom from the devil, freedom from sin, freedom from death. But not only that, Jesus' freedom is freedom from your own flesh, meaning you do not have to obey your own whims and desires that lead to the destruction of your soul, your appetites and urges that entangle and destroy you. You can be free from them. But the definition of freedom many of us know today is more informed by the Enlightenment or by the Founding Fathers, by a few elite intellectuals who came to believe and claim, no, freedom is the ability to do whatever you want. And maybe we don't articulate it precisely that way. Instead, we say, be true to yourself. Don't let anyone tell you what you can and can't be. Follow your heart. And the problem then becomes what happens when a person is free to do what they want, they follow their heart, they're true to themselves, and you end up with a story like Bill Cosby's. And it's built into this strange, warped idea of freedom. Again, Dallas Willard writes this, Ideas are the primary stronghold of evil in the human self and in society. This weekend, Abby and I took our kids to the pumpkin patch on Savi Island, one of like 10 down there or whatever, and I was on the hayride, you know, with the crowd of people. It was bumbling along. Everyone's, oh, oh, oh. it's a hayride. I don't know what the thrill is, but it really was quite fun. And uh, <laughs> I was, you know, behind this gentleman. I was reading his sweatshirt. He had some kind of like pro-American military, go get the terrorist propaganda sweatshirt on. And I was just reading it for a moment on that hayride. I was taken aback and I thought, man, isn't it fascinating that so many people down throughout history convince themselves that it's good and necessary to kill other people in the name of ideologies and governments and religions. And none of them are like cartoon villains who twirl their mustaches and say, mm, I'm so evil or, you know, whatever. That, I didn't know I was going to do the voice, but there it is. <laughs> They're just people that believe in an idea. And so does the other side. And then people die lies, unreality. They come to us in the form of powerful ideas. And these ideas play to the brokenness of people in a broken society, and comedy is always becoming tragedy. But 
Listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was and is a teacher, a man with ideas of his own. And Jesus tells the truth. He did not come to lead an army or to run for office. He came as a truth teller. And it's so fascinating that Israel expected this violent military leader for a Messiah and they wound up with a pacifist who taught nonviolence and enemy love. And one reason that it's weird is because the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah often make him out to sound like a warlord of some kind. There's all sorts of violent imagery about victorious battle and vanquished foes and enemies crushed under his feet. But as you continue to read the New Testament, you begin to realize Jesus did come to do battle. He did come to destroy an enemy. But there's no swords or rifles or drone strikes. And yet Jesus still manages to, quote, set the captives free, to release those who are in bondage. But the bondage is to lies. Because Jesus outright claims to be, and I quote, the truth, not just a truth teller, but the truth to lay waste to a treacherous enemy's most precious weapon, lies. Because a lie does not do harm until it takes root. You hear lies all day, every day, many of which achieve no lasting effect. But some, some of them dig their hooks in and they take root and they release a slow but steady strain of venom into your soul. And part of your discipleship to Jesus is to locate and uproot those lies and allow the Spirit of God to nurse you back to health and recovery with the truth of Jesus. So to end this week, the idea is that you will gather with your community and head to practicingtheway.org. If you're not in a community just yet or if you're listening to this on the podcast, grab a couple of friends and give it a shot. There are two exercises to begin with. We're inviting you to sit with your community, make just 10 or 15 minutes of quiet space. If you're like ours, you've got a million kids running around, whatever. Pray, listen, and begin the quest to identify the lies that you believe. Now listen, this can be tremendously complicated. Many, if not most of the lies we believe, escape our notice because we think they are true. So the idea is to invite God's Spirit and to ask Him point blank. What are the lies that I believe are true? Consider the things that make you anxious, for example. The things that hurt you, the things that scare you. And ask why. Is there a lie connected there? And then if you're comfortable, begin to move them out into the light. Allow other disciples of Jesus, your friends, your family, and your community to confront those lies with the truth. You don't need to be a counselor. You don't need to just pat them on the back. You don't need to be a Bible scholar. You can simply speak the truth of Jesus over them. I'm unloved. I'm worthless. That's not true. The Bible says you are made in the image of God. He's your Father. He loves you. If you're not sure, pray again. Listen again. Give it a shot. This is the beginning of a process. It's not a one-off. The second practice you'll do is on your own. Once you begin the process of identifying certain lies, You'll listen and pray again in an effort to uncover how those lies appeal to your brokenness and how they've been normalized in a broken world. And then you'll ask yourself, what truth is Jesus inviting me to believe instead? Remember, every square inch of the cosmos is both, both claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. Where there's a lie, there's a truth to, to be believed instead. 
And another inherent complication here is that many of us persist in lies because it feels safe, because there's comfort there, there's security. We've come to believe the truth is too scary, it feels like it might humiliate us, or it asks too much, or it costs too much. And I want to say over and over again that this is a safe place for you. Jesus is not here to do you any harm whatsoever. He is here to set you free. And I'm sure you've gathered. Again, this isn't a one-off activity. This is the beginning of something quite big. And as always, our humble invitation to you is to simply keep an open mind and give it a shot. You know, when we got together with Bridgetown, the church that planted us, we, we worked together to develop these practices. We realized a series and practice like this is not exactly a cool one, you know. Uh, we've been talking about it for quite a while. Um, you know, a series on having an awesome marriage or on parenting or even learning your Enneagram number or loving your millennial soul or <laughs> how to follow your dreams. I think that would sell quite well. But a series on fighting the devil in your own flesh, it's cool to me. I don't know about the rest of you guys, you know. Um, I'm not saying that to brag about how awesome we are. We're doing all right. But just to acknowledge that this might feel a bit unusual, and that's totally okay. To end, I want to read um, from a passage, a passage from C.S. Lewis from the Screwtape Letters. Uh, next week, I'll have some recommended reading for you guys, and spoiler alert, this is on it, um, in which it is written, listen to this, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. So, no, the devil himself is likely not to blame for your cold or your parking ticket, I think. But the more realistic problem for most of us, I think, is not the kind of radical overemphasis on the devil. Uh, maybe for a couple of us, but for most of us, no. The danger for most of us is failing to acknowledge the devil at all, an overlooked father of lies, and us as the unwitting recipients of his deceptions. So my humble request again is stay with us these next few weeks, suspend judgment, hear us out, give these practices a shot. I believe that there is something here of tremendous power and value for you and I, not just for this season of our church and our lives, but in our, the entirety of our journey as disciples of Jesus. Because if Jesus was telling the truth, then the truth, he said, will set us free. Let's pray together and invite God's Spirit to come and speak over us in this part of our journey together. Thanks for listening to Van City Church. There are more teachings and available resources from Van City at vancity.church. You can support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.